Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Welcome to, the, to this evening's discussion live in the studio about the television show Girls. Uh, if you're here, you're probably already aware of what an impact it's had on the television landscape and certainly pop culture-wise and socially. Uh, I don't know that on Australian television it probably got the run that it deserved, but uh, anyone that is passionate about television is on it. You're here, so I'd say that you're on it too. And we have a really great panel of people that are going to be discussing uh, the television show tonight. Uh, our panel includes, uh, or is, Clementine Ford, Michaela Maguire, Sam Cooney and Byron Bache. Let's give them a round of applause as well. My name is Jess Maguire. I uh, am a broadcaster at Triple R. I work on the Breakfasters show. I'm also a writer, but it's not about me tonight, so I'm not going to give you too much of a bio. I will start giving you the bio, though, for our very first speaker this evening, and she is Clementine Ford. She's a writer, a broadcaster, and in her own words, a troublemaker. Her work is often focused on feminist and social commentary, pop culture, and anecdotal memoir and biographical features. So you may have read it, in The Drum, The Lonely Planet, Adelaide Sunday Mail, The Canberra Times, The Big Issue, Clio, The Literary Journal, Kill Your Darlings and a ton more. Uh, tonight she's going to be talking about Lena Dunham's honest, brutal portrayal of Hannah's raw and unpredictable interactions with Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, Clementine Ford. Can, you, can everyone hear me? I, I'm they're, also in the No, they're very quick with myself. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. You're fine. Um, right, so firstly... Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, I do have spoilers for the last episode, so I assume everyone's seen the whole series. And if you haven't, you should have done, so it's your fault. <laughs> um, firstly, I just want to talk a little bit about the backlash against Lena Dunham uh, when the show first debuted. Um, I, even when I first heard about it, I sort of had that kind of attitude of... You know, I'd heard a few things people had said about um, it being a particular kind of narrow viewpoint. And I think that there was quite a bit of jealousy in me as well that I thought, oh, this girl is so young and so successful and she's got her own show and she's got to be shit. <laughs> um, but then I said, I, like, I gave it a chance and I realised straight away that it's not just a funny show, it's not just incredibly watchable, but it's also brilliant in its execution and um, conceptually as well. I think that for a 25-year-old, the, the kind of world that Lena Dunham has created is so recognisable to so many women you know, in a, like a very mainstream kind of Generation Y capacity. Um, but the way that she kind of explores all of those issues was, you know, I've often looked at it and I thought, how can she know this already at 23 or 24 when she must have started writing it? And I am learning this through her at the age of 31. Um, so it's funny, it's clever, it showcases the exceptional talents of its creator and the cast she's assembled. But... Despite that, when it debuted, there was a distinct backlash. And from women particularly... I don't know if anyone here reads Jezebel. Does anyone read Jezebel? Yeah. Well, there was a particular backlash on Jezebel. Um, 
many of whom scrabble to condemn Lena Dunham as privileged, middle class, mindless, self-indulgent, ridiculous, and in the most bizarre claims, racist, because she didn't have a black character in her show. Um, she doesn't, but I, you know, there's lots of shows who don't showca showcase like a wide diversity of ethnicities, and I'm not sure why she in particular had to wear the blame for not being all things to all people. Um, so she wasn't just self-indulgent and whiny, she was also guilty of not representing an experience beyond the limited confines of her own upbringing, of presenting a shallow view of New York, as opposed to Sex and the City, um, <laughs> which, she was, which it was routinely compared with, probably because it was set in New York and there were four women in it, and so they must be the same. Um, but the politics and so-called feminist empowerment of, the, of Sex and the City has especially been targeted by girls, with the very first episode preempting the two shows' inevitable comparisons. Um, and my first clip, which I don't want to play just yet, but um, is really kind of showcasing Shoshana, who is the most mainstream of the four women and who has been deliberately created to kind of be an antidote to that Sex and the City frivolousness and fantasy world of what women are like by directly playing into it. So she's, cl she's clearly latched onto the artifice of what it means to be a sex in the city girl. If she didn't already live in New York, she would take a trip there to do the bus tour, stopping at Magnolia Bakery to enjoy a real New York cupcake and catch taxis everywhere just so that she could feel what it was like to be a woman in New York, um, as if all women in New York catch taxis everywhere. Her bedroom has a poster of the Sex and the City movie, and although we find out later that despite her allegiance to the Sex and the City life, she's a virgin, she adheres to the ridiculous rules of dating combat and women perpetuated by that show in its six seasons. Um, and I think that it's in stuff like that that Girls is especially successful, and I would assume by the large proportion of women who've attended tonight as well, that you've recognised something of yourselves in the four women. Um, as Lena Dunham said in an interview she did about... She did a web series called Delusional Divas and it was about... It's poking fun at the kinds of people who want to be artists for the sake of being famous and for being able to call themselves artists but don't actually do any work to produce art. Um, and she says in that interview that the responses I've gotten from most women my age is that they were waiting to see themselves reflected back to themselves. And whether or not it's showcasing a very sort of small kind of ideal of what it's like to be a young woman in you know 2012 or not it is true i think that girls is one of the first shows that's hit the mainstream that has really showcased like an honest portrayal of the flaws and the complexities of young women that aren't written by people who aren't them and who aren't trying to portray women as one particular way of being you know like all of the women often we talk about or we hear talk talked about this idea of like the strong female character and that tends to be confused with someone who's feisty or someone who, like, could, could hold a gun, you know. And so that means that she gets to be the only female character in a group of, you know, in an all-male cast. But these women I consider to be strong female characters and that they're all flawed. They've, they're all, like, unlikable in their own ways but, but also have these moments where you feel sympathy and empathy for them. Um, I think that one of the best kind of... I don't know why I keep looking back at that. I think it's because I'm a little bit nervous. Um, <laughs> One of the best examples of that kind of the way that Lena Dunham turns our expectations on our heads is through the representation of her relationship with Adam. And, you know, it starts from a casual hookup who appears to treat Hannah badly to someone at the end of the show declaring their love for her and her sort of shrugging it off. 
um, she cleverly flips the romantic comedy ideal on its head while at the same time deliberately clocking wins for her audience along the way and revealing more and more about Adam. Hannah's speech to Adam there is filled with all the passion and conviction of every woman who's practised a speech to a dismissive lover in their heads and even has the fantasy ending of him appearing to open up emotionally to her and invite him into his, into his world. Standing up to him has made him love her more and it's also the part of the show where we start to love Adam more because although we don't realise it, Dunham is delicately creating a situation in which we think we, as opposed to Hannah, are in control. Sorry, as, as positioned with Hannah, are in control. We're wooing the boy into loving us and winning the prize we've obsessed about for so long. And it's not until the party sequence in episode seven that we see Hannah and our complicity in her own situation. She yells at Adam for keeping secrets from her, for not telling him things about his li- telling her things about his life. And he gets equally angry back, screaming that she doesn't want to know him, that she never asks him any questions. All she ever asks is, does this look good on me or how does that feel? And it's, we realise that her whole obsession with Adam has been about her obsession with herself and about his relationship to how she views herself. And so he's become this kind of like superficial prize to her where she... I mean, that was what I was kind of referencing before when I said that I've learnt stuff through watching girls about the way that I've behaved in my own life that hadn't even occurred to me. You know, all those sort of like cycles of obsession with people, not realising that it was, it was really just kind of like this reflected image that I wanted to have of myself. And he perfectly highlights that in this scene in the, in the last episode when, um, you know, he finally declares his love to her and she's kind of just shrugging it off um, because she's, I guess, like tapping into that very self-obsessed point that she's at in her life. And there's nothing wrong with that either. It's just that that's the place she's in. I think I realised in that episode that the whole time we were supposed to be identifying with Adam, like he's watching the world and Lena Dunham's playing this just awful, self-indulgent, self-obsessed creature who's not a terrible person, but, God, she needs to wake up to herself. And that's kind of what makes the criticism of the show really interesting as well, because I don't feel at any point that she's presenting a person who she thinks is is a desirable kind of person to be around. Um, there's an immense privilege in the character of Hannah Horvath, and it's not even really to do with her money. It's to do with her sense of entitlement in the world. And I think we have to move on now. So thanks, Jess. Thank you very much for the time. Michaela Maguire is a journalist and a writer based in Melbourne. Her work has been published in The Monthly, Good Weekend and The Age. Her first book, Apply Within, Stories of Career Sabotage, was published back in 2009. And she has worked as a columnist for both The Sunday Age and Q Weekend. Michaela is co-curator and host of the best-selling monthly literary salon Women of Letters. Her second book of non-fiction will be published next year and she's going to be tonight discussing the distinction between Lena Dunham, who may well be the voice of her generation, and the character of Hannah Horvath, who, as far as Michaela is concerned, most definitely is not. Ladies and gentlemen, Michaela Maguire. Thanks, Jess. Um... Jess asked us before to sum up what we were going to say, so I just gave her my first sentence, which she has just read, um, which wasn't a great move in hindsight. Um, in art, it's called appropriation. So. Uh, in her talk with Emily Nussbaum, who's the New Yorker film critic uh, at the New Yorker Festival earlier this year, Lena Dunham said, I think there are definitely moments, there are certain relationships, and this is a scary thing to say out loud because I tried so hard to have good, kind relationships with everyone. 
But there are certain people where you make the calculation where you kind of think, you're probably going to be pissed at me if I write about this interaction that we had, but I kind of don't care because my work is more important to me than knowing you. <laughs> Lena Dunham has taken this scary attitude towards her own work and amplified it tenfold in the character of Hannah. In that New Yorker talk, Lena went on to say that her friends don't need to worry about her listening to their troubles and then running off and writing an episode called Jessica's Abortion. But Hannah lacks the same grace and is unable to make the distinction. The Mr. Hyde to Dunham's Dr. Jekyll is a 20-something memoirist talking up in Brooklyn, stumbling into misfortune and exploiting it for material. Like most of the characters in Girls, Hannah is a sensitive solipsist, an artist struggling through a period of confused limbo and prone to crippling fits of self-pity. The brilliance behind Hannah's character is that she's a satirical trope for the kind of self-indulgent, overly personal and revelatory memoir writers that have soured other legacy of Nora Ephron and Joan Didion. Many young writers now feel it incumbent upon themselves to make bold, lasting statements about the world, all filtered by a viewpoint that, while limited by a dearth of life experience, is crippled by an institutional narcissism. That's what's expected of the market now, uh, and I, for one, totally fell for it. Um, I'd like to make the disclaimer that now that I'm 27 and my memoir is three years behind me, I hope not to write another one for many, many months. Dunham is qualified to share this viewpoint that is limited by a life experience and crippled by the institutional narcissism because it's a parody. She's able to ironically impugn her character with the wisdom of a much older woman, but is humanistic enough to create a sympathetic parody of herself. We're supposed to uncomfortably identify her, but to draw comparisons between the character and the person is a mistake. Hannah Horvath, with her imperfect body, flawed self-image, often annoying quirks, and quest to experience sex and love in a relationship with someone who wants to hang out with me all the time and thinks I'm the best person in the world and wants to have sex with only me, is a new kind of television heroine. Those of us who are lucky enough to still be in our 20s embrace Hannah and all her foibles because she reminds us of the joys and the pains of this time and inspires us to work a little bit harder on self-realisation. Many, though, have condemned the social narrowness of girls and their complaints are justified. The show does, after all, unfurl in privileged corridors, following the shenanigans of four New York 20-somethings who are being bankrolled by their parents and whose problems involve book launches and bad sex. But girls also just suggests that entitlement can be a superpower. It's the strength to believe, even when no one is listening, that you do have something to say. Girls is a celebration of what it is to feel trivial and to share this without any qualms. Dunham's generation has, thanks to the internet, surrendered its privacy to an unprecedented degree, and she is less private than most. She kept an old-fashioned journal once, but abandoned it. In the New Yorker profile that was written about her a couple of years ago, she says, I was like, what's the point if no one's reading it? I would leave it out on the counter on purpose for my parents. <laughs> Girls and her feature film Tiny Furniture before it are, in a sense, that journal left out on the counter. The memoir that she has just inked a $3.5 million book deal for will be like that on a much grander scale. Dunham, though, is hyper-aware of the trap of becoming the butt of her own joke. Hannah's character is carefully crafted to illustrate the inherent ridiculousness of our navel-gazing culture, and Dunham herself has said that, I think that people in the phase between becoming someone kid, someone's kid and being someone's parent have always been uniquely narcissistic but that social media and Twitter and LiveJournal make it really easy to navel-gaze in a way that you've never been able to before. People taking pictures of what they eat and showing them on their Facebook. People assume that people have a level of interest in what they're doing that's maybe far greater than it actually is. It's easy to grasp why Dunham has so often been compared to Nora Ephron, whose own self-effacing wit and laser-sharp lens on how life and relationships really are, as opposed to how we wish they could be, will forever be cherished through the legacy of her artistic expression in her films When Harry Met Sally and Hanging Up, and the utter frankness of her essays, I feel bad about my neck and I remember nothing. 
A journalist who was present at an in-conversation between Efron and Dunham last year noted that women in the audience openly asked Nora for life advice, their voices tinged with panic. Many women will do the same of Lena Dunham, which is why they will read her memoir. In one of her essays, Nora Efron quipped, I don't think any day is worth living without thinking about what you're going to eat next at all times. Dunham has said, my dad finds Twitter just infinitely unrelatable. He's like, why would I want to tell anybody what I had for a snack? It's private. And I'm like, why would you even have a snack if you didn't tell anybody? Why bother eating? <laughs> Here you can witness a continuum, the cultural evolution from Efron's practical feminism to Dunham's promo self-aware satire of her own narcissism, both individual and generational. Whether or not she's a voice of our generation or a generation, Dunham is an important one. She encourages creatives to look at how silly they can be, especially while young. In a mediascape where content, not quality, is sought cheaply and quickly, and people who can drum up 800 words about their heartbreak or their depression or their abortion or their lunch have risen to unprecedented prominence, Dunham is sorely needed because she calls bullshit on all of that. Thanks. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you, Jess. Our next speaker is Sam Cooney, who is a writer and an editor. His fiction, non-fiction and poetry have appeared in a few publications in Australia and overseas, and as an editor, he's worked for literary journals and publishing houses. He is the editor and publisher of The Lifted Brow, a literary arts and culture magazine. And tonight, he's going to be focusing on talking about Adam and why he thinks Adam is the best character, because in Sam's words, he's a douchebag. So, ladies and gentlemen, Sam Cooney. Thanks, Jess. Everyone can hear me okay? Um, when I was 17, my father caught me energetically finger-banging the girl who was my girlfriend at the time. <laughs> she was half on, half off her bed, kind of lying down, kind of sitting up, with her purple jean shorts around her knees. I was hunched over like a roadside telecom engineer, wholly concentrating on the task that was before me. I knew that we were due to leave soon with my family to go to the beach, and so I had only minutes to reach the goal, a goal which was entirely nebulous. <laughs> Seeing as this girlfriend of mine seemed medically unable to reach orgasm. Sometimes I wondered if my techniques were perhaps awry, but I always managed to self-therapise and convince myself that the problem couldn't possibly be me. <laughs> Sometimes now I wonder if she actively refused to give me the satisfaction of giving her an orgasm because I don't ever think she really liked me as a person. <laughs> But she was only 16, and no 16-year-old could be that evil, surely. <laughs> anyway, at some stage during my labours, I glanced up and saw that my bespectacled father was standing at the bedroom door just looking. <laughs> Whenever I think about this moment, I always and each time hope that he only just opened the door a microsecond before I caught his eye. But the small part of me that isn't self-deceiving always believes that he'd actually been standing there for some time, either not knowing what to say or not wanting to spoil the moment that we three were now suddenly sharing. <laughs> Uh, despite the fact that neither myself nor my then-girlfriend had permitted him to be a part of this downright unsexy and thus very sexy act. Um, a lot more of what I'm about to say during the next few minutes is going to sound wrong, uh, but seeing as we're here to talk about a show that, despite it being accurate and sincere and truthful and right on so many levels, has been continually excavated for being apparently wrong. Um, and so I think me saying things that are a bit wrong is kind of perfect. Uh, my favourite scene of Girls is the one where Adam, in response to Hannah sitting in his bathroom crying after a semi-fight in which she tells him that she almost had sex with her boss, unquote, for the story, and I don't know, just to be an asshole or asshole, quote, lies down on his bed and masturbates waiting for her to find him. 
His refusal, or perhaps an inability to talk frankly and openly about his and Hannah's relationship has become a major obstacle, and thus he needs to find a fix or else lose Hannah altogether. Instead of using words, instead of inviting Hannah into a conversation, Adam gets naked and plays with his cock. He asks Hannah to stay and to watch and insult him. He coerces Hannah into calling him names and acting all disparaging, perhaps knowing that he has been quite the prick to her and deserves to be called pathetic and disgusting and filthy. He tells her that repeatedly that he is sorry, eventually yelling it out, his brown eyes full of feeling. This is how Adam deals with his problems, and I found myself relating on a very uncomfortable level. <laughs> the last thing that happens in the scene, and indeed that episode, is Adam extending his semen-covered palm and fingers to Hannah, asking her to shake his hand. This would have been really good for a clip, I just realised that. <laughs> he chortles and smiles. Adam feels satisfied that he has reached out to Hannah and that he has dealt with their problems. He was solidified as my favourite girl's character in season 8 in the scene where Marnie is talking to Jessa. Shit, this would have been good for a clip as well. Jessa, in reference to Adam, says, What's the deal with that guy? Is he like a great thinker or just a total fucking idiot? And Marnie, Marnie replies, He's not like unnice or anything, he's just fucking weird. Like I walked into the bathroom the other day, I kid you not, he was sitting there taking a shit and drinking milk at the same time. <laughs> and he just stared at me. Jessa says, That kind of person would just totally masturbate in front of anybody any day. And Marnie says, ooh. There are so many reasons as to why this makes me love him, not least the fact that I never cease to find it actually thrilling to eat or drink while go whilst going to the toilet. <laughs> Adam is a do-what-you-feel-like kind of person. He is sincere, he is gross, and he has weird fetishes. He is absolutely a role model, not least because of his penchant for nudity. <sighs> In something like 2008, I travelled through parts of Southeast Asia with my now ex-girlfriend, not the same one from before. <laughs> At one stage, when we were in Thailand, we decided we wanted to go to Halong Bay because it has heaps of pretty islands. And so we took a night bus, which was a massively stupid idea. Thailand doesn't have really have many paved roads, so the, the drive was bumpy, uh, and the recliner seats are designed for Thai-sized people. So we didn't sleep. Uh, when we pulled in to the small coastal village near Halong Bay, we were just really fucking grumpy, and so we had a big, albeit quiet, fight, because it's always easier to blame someone else for your own bad mood. Then we consciously didn't make up and started walking to our pre-booked accommodation, which was about a kilometre away. The walk followed the ridiculously beautiful coastline and there was an open-air trinket market almost the entire way, but I couldn't really see any of it because my view was obscured by a cloud of stupidity that represented my ex-girlfriend's arguments, which were all obviously invalid. <laughs> Through this thick cloud of stupidity, I could also just see my actual ex-girlfriend because she didn't want to walk alongside me and was thus striding angrily about 20 metres ahead. And fine by me, I didn't want to work with her, walk with her either. Also, despite the cloud, I did manage to notice that a lot of the Thai locals were paying particular close attention to me. The people standing next to their trinket stalls at the market were giving me funny looks and oddly weren't trying to sell me anything. The fishermen wearing fisherman pants, sitting on tiny seats weaving fishing nets, halted their never-ending handiwork to also just stare at me. And hordes of smiling-eyed kids kept dancing around me, walking backwards, pointing and giggling, following me for hundreds of metres. Sure, I was tall and white and ugly and weird, but I knew I couldn't have been the first Caucasian male they'd ever seen. When I finally arrived at our accommodation, I didn't want to acknowledge my ex-girlfriend, who was standing right in front of the accommodation waiting to be helped by the owners, because to acknowledge her would have been to let her know that I thought her worth acknowledging. Instead, I just directed all my concentration to removing my giant backpack and just generally adjusting myself after the long, sweaty walk. I was wearing fisherman pants at this stage of the trip because I'd been in Thailand for over a week, and I thus <laughs> obviously... And it thus obviously changed so much as a person that I couldn't help but reflect it in my clothing choices. It wasn't long before I looked down in order to retire my fisherman pants, 
and I, when I did look down, I didn't see a neatly tied pair of fisherman pants. Instead, I was greeted by the sight of my dick and balls. <laughs> they were just hanging out, catching some sun. At some point during the walk, probably at the very start of the walk, when putting on my backpack, the front of my fisherman pants had dropped. And because I wasn't wearing any underwear, because I was free now that I was in Thailand, uh, the, the tie of my fisherman pants had stayed tied around my waist, but the hem had fallen and, fall and formed a frame. <laughs> the hem had fallen and formed a frame around the surrealist artwork that is my male genitalia. I'd walked through this village, probably encountering the majority of its inhabitants, old and young, and really, really, really young, with my genitals swaying in the breeze like sneakers on a power line. The best part of this whole situation was that only after a few seconds, I realised that hundreds of strangers had seen my genitals, and I felt really okay about it, and even good. <laughs> I realised I wasn't embarrassed, so what if people saw my junk? Maybe it was a positive. Maybe it indicated to people that I had nothing to hide, that I wasn't a concealer, that I was authentic. Of course, this is all bullshit, but still, for a few moments, I felt like Adam Sackler. I felt good and true and sincere. I felt like I could convey more of my character through unshackling my genitals from their clothing prison than I ever could with words. <laughs> Unlike Adam, I've never snapped off a condom and masturbated furiously over a lover's stomach while audibly fantasising that said lover is an 11-year-old heroin addict street kid who carries a cabbage patch lunchbox. <laughs> But I feel like I understand Adam. I understand that not only does he live in a world that is actually titled girls, but he also now lives in a world of girls in which every guy's behaviour is analysed through the lens of feminist thought. I love this world. I love that as a guy, the world feel, feels more large and interesting and challenging because it's not totally weighted to the side that have penises. But it can be quite hard sometimes because sometimes guys are told that being a bro and masculine is great, and not only by people who are bro and masculine. And sometimes there are women out there so, and there are women out there who respond positive, positively to the kind of bro and masculine behaviour. And then other times guys are told that that kind of behaviour is completely out of line. Uh, there's a scene in Girls where Hannah is standing insecure about being a little fat and Adam says, gather my fat, you'll feel less alone if you gather my fat. <laughs> if that's not noble and considerate, I don't know what is. <laughs> I get it though. I get how he can be mistaken as a total douchebag. But in experience, everyone is a douchebag because the qualities of a douchebag are completely vague. It could be said that to be a douchebag is to be human. Many douchebags are just being themselves. What would you rather, a world of fake politeness or a world that has real politeness and also lots of douchebagness? <laughs> um, Adam is the most real-life real character on the show, in, in my opinion, largely because he is contradictory. He's muscly, he, he is a muscly, jug-eared contortion of contradictions. These contradictions resolved into something like coherence when Hannah learns in the seventh episode that Adam has attended Alcoholic, Alcoholics Anonymous since he was 17. The revelation is a turning point in their relationship and leads to them becoming a more real couple. Then Hannah sees part of the play he is working on, a monologue that suggests a lonely adolescence and perhaps the early, the early stages of his weird sexual inclinations. And suddenly Adam's character makes sense, it makes sense as a bewildered 20-something negotiating the path from boyhood to maturity. What's more, his self-determination increasingly dis distinguishes him from the girls of the show. Walking to play rehearsal, he tells Hannah... I'm really excited for you to see it because I'm really good at acting and writing. That confidence contrasts sharply with Hannah's own performance at a reading in the following episode. Uh, while she and her female friends are busy deciding who they are, Adam knows who he is. Even his enthusiasm for physical fitness now seems part of a broader dedication to self-improvement. As the season continues, we learn more about Adam. We see how confident and smart he is about certain things, and more importantly, we see how much he actually cares about Hannah. 
He becomes this compassionate and committed boyfriend, always in his own special Adam way. It's why it's so effectively annoying when in the season finale, Hannah freaks out after getting exactly what she said she wanted. Adam is incredulous and asks her, you chase me like I'm the fucking Beatles for six months, and then when I finally get comfortable with things, you want to shrug? Then he gets hit by a car and doesn't let her ride with him to the ambulance, which is such a good move. The last time we see him, is conscious, he is conscious and talking and breathing and still being a bit of a douchebag. I hope the car accident doesn't cause some kind of late-onset aneurysm or anything because I can't wait to see more of Adam next season. Imagine what kind of weird sexual stuff awaits. <laughs> Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, Sam. That was incredibly revealing. I don't have any questions to ask you <laughs> later on. I think anything I possibly could have had has been put in my head. Uh, now, though, uh, our final speaker tonight is Byron Baish. Uh, Byron is a freelance writer and editor, a theatre and TV critic, critic for Crikey, and a professional procrastinator. So he's a writer, as I just mentioned. Uh, he's been fired by Channel 9, described as snotty-nosed by John Michael Housen, who is, as I said to you earlier, a tosser, so that's a badge of pride. Uh, and he's been called a talentless douche by Anthony Kalia. <laughs> His elbow and shoulder appeared in two episodes of Heartbreak High. That's true. And his life's ambition is apparently to become the white Benjamin Law. I, didn't, I don't see colour Byron, so I didn't even know that Ben wasn't white because what is white or Asian or whatever, but that's what you're going to be. Go for it. Uh, Byron's going to be talking about girls and its place in television history and a lot more. He'll sum it up. He's very good. Ladies and gentlemen, Byron Bash. Thank you, Jess. Uh, so, as we've all said, uh, more has been written about girls than pretty much any piece of culture, I think, in recent memory. They did a little count. There are 22 pieces about it on Slate. There are 17 on Salon. There are 27 New York Times articles. And that's not even counting the stuff that's just about Lena Dunham. Um, Stereo Gum and Gizmodo found ways to cover it. I don't know if you're familiar with those websites, but it's bizarre. And if you want an interesting evening when you get home, have a look at James Franco's piece about girls on the Huffington Post. <laughs> that's quite all right. It's about 4,000 words long. So everyone's got their take, you know, it's, it's racist, it's sexist, it's the death of feminism, it's everything that's wrong with the youth. Uh, on Mother Jones, in his review, a guy called Aswan Subsang called it as profoundly bland as it is unstoppably irritating. The exiled's Eileen Jones called it a miserable crap-coloured show. <laughs> now, to be fair, both these reviews are about as classy as brick veneer, but that's the consensus among non-believers. It's bland, it's pointless, it's... It's all of these things. I happen to disagree, but that's beside the point. Everyone was so desperate to be the first person to point out that this particular emperor wasn't wearing any clothes that they almost forgot that it's just TV. Um, it is just TV, but it's perfect TV. It's so good. Girls is part of that strange new breed of shows that nobody quite knows how to classify, not even the people who run the Emmy Awards. So like Nurse Jackie, Weeds or The Big C, it's a half hour show, but like those three shows, it's billed as a comedy, even though it looks and feels like a drama. And like those three shows, its protagonist is this massively flawed yet inexplicably likeable woman who feels like a real person. So instead of taking the show down, I kind of wanted to take it apart. How does it work? Why does it work? What makes Hannah tick? Where does she come from? So she's a writer. She's a girl. She lives in New York. She has sex. So the go-to comparison's got to be Carrie Bradshaw, right? She has, she has to be Hannah's kind of direct antecedent, if you will. So here's the thing, right? If you walked up to Hannah Horvath and you told her she was a self-indulgent cunt with the emotional range of a toddler, she'd probably write an essay about it. Jessa would tell you were right and Marnie would roll her eyes. 
She said that to Carrie Bradshaw. She'd call up her cackling brunch crones who'd fawn and fall over themselves to tell her she was a selfless paragon of maturity. Samantha would purse some completely unrelated adage about penis size. And Charlotte would open her mouth really wide, furrow her brow and say, what's a cunt? <laughs> People have called girls a sort of post-college sex in the city, but it's really not. It's also not the sequel to Gossip Girl, I've heard it called. I prefer to think of it as a prequel to The Golden Girls. <laughs> so... I couldn't help but wonder. If it's not Carrie Bradshaw who's responsible for what we see before us, then who? I decided to try reducing Hannah to an archetype to see where that'd get me. But the problem is she's more like this kind of all-you-can-eat lady buffet of television types. But, you know, I came up with some sentences. I thought, is she the girl with the non-traditional support system making it in the big city? Because maybe then she's just like Mary from the Mary Tyler Moore Show or Murphy Brown or Grace Adler from Will and Grace? Or is she the neurotic girl who's always in awkward situations of her own making? Because then maybe she's I Love Lucy. She's Lucy from I Love Lucy, Fran from The Nanny, or Samantha Stevens from Bewitched. Or is she the girl with too many feelings and too many ways to articulate them? Because then she's Angela from My So-Called Life, or Joey from Dawson's Creek, or Lisa Simpson. (laughs) Or the girl who gets in trouble for saying whatever's on her mind and letting her crazy show? Because then maybe she's Daria, maybe she's Ally McBeal, maybe she's Lindsay Weir from Freaks and Geeks. And I didn't realise until yesterday, but Becky Ann Baker, who plays Hannah Horvath's mother, also played Lindsay Weir's mother. Pretty awesome. So she's kind of all of these and none of these. And that's what makes her such a genius creation. She's not an archetype, except that she is in one very specific way. And that's the thing that sets girls apart from Weeds and Nurse Jackie and the big scene, Enlightened, and those other kind of half-hour dramedies, dreaded word. Uh, And the thing that steers it closer to sitcom territory is the way that girls is built so if you'll indulge me for a minute i'm going to try and teach you something you might not know about sitcoms the best ones all followed the same character template a family structure there's a mother a father a teenager and a baby on the golden girls dorothy's the mother sophia's the father blanche is the teenager and rose is the baby makes sense right on 30 rock liz is the mother jack's the father jenna's the teenager and tracy's the baby you pick (laughs) Any good sitcom and it conforms to this mould. Seinfeld, Arrested Development, The Simpsons, though Lisa is the father and Homer's the baby in that one. Uh, Frasier, Faulty Towers, Will and Grace, The Good Life, The Nanny, even Desperate Housewives uses the formula. And it happens here. Hannah's the mother, Marnie's the disapproving father, Jess is the freewheeling teenager, and Shoshana's the wide-eyed baby. So weirdly, Girls is more conventional than it looks, but there are so many ways in which it breaks new ground. It passes the Bechdel test in its first scene and its second scene and its third scene. Now, if you don't know what the Bechdel test is, it was invented in 1985 by a cartoonist called Alison Bechdel. To pass the Bechdel test, a work of fiction has to A, contain at least two women who B, have a conversation with each other about C, something other than a man. It's interesting to note that Sex and the City takes a season and a half to pass the Bechdel test and then doesn't pass it again for another two seasons. (laughs) Whereas the Mary Taylor Moore show which aired in 1970, right? So that's 16 years before Lena Dunham was born. Passes it in every scene of the pilot. Pretty amazing. Uh, But one of the other things that Girls does better than any other show I can think of, which Clem talked about, is female friendship. These people look and sound and fight like people I know. Female friendships on other shows ostensibly about girls are weird. My female friends don't go to brunch, order egg white omelettes and talk about vajazzling. They don't spend all day texting emoticons at each other from the gold-encrusted blackberries they keep in their Birkin bags. And much as I wish they would, they don't get up at 2am in inexplicably shoulder-padded dressing gowns to drown their sorrows in cheesecake and puns. 
It's worth noting too that Girls premiered in the exact same television season as that creepy little bastion of racism and rape jokes, Two Broke Girls. Also ostensibly about less than perfect girls struggling to make it in Brooklyn, a show which, if you've seen it, you'll know is about as edgy as Rock as Steadford and about as feminist as Clint Eastwood. Um, <laughs> we're trained to expect cliches when we watch TV, yet every time Girls gets anywhere near one, the whole thing kind of veers to the left. Take the finale, for example, which we touched on before. They all do the exact opposite of what you expect them to do in the final episode. Now, what I'm about to say isn't going to make sense if you haven't seen it, but if Shoshana was the one getting married, Hannah fucked the fat guy, Jessa wandered the streets, and Marnie slept with Ray, you'd be like, yeah, that makes sense, right? But Girls isn't interested in the obvious. These characters are allowed to be actual losers. They're not cardboard cutout dweebs like Ross Geller or George Costanza. They're the kind of flawed people that I don't think we've really seen on TV since maybe Roseanne. Um, Lynn and Dunham in her writer's room know that Hannah's an asshole. They know that Jess is a poser. They know that Shoshana's desperate to fit in. And they let these people be what they are instead of some reductive zero-sum group of winners and losers. Now, I promised myself and two of my friends that I wouldn't talk about winners and losers, but if you want to know <laughs> what girls as reimagined by Melon Kochi would look like, go on by the box set. <laughs> A lesser show would slut-shame Jessa. A lesser show would make Marnie a sexless shrew. Even the terrible people in the girls' universe make total sense. Tally Schifrin, she's basically the social equivalent of an ectopic pregnancy. But I'm willing to bet that about half the people in this room went to college, went to university with a Tally Schifrin, right? I did. I went to school four of them. <laughs> uh, and Hannah, sweet, bumbling, incredible Hannah. A lesser show would have made her stupid or put her in a push-up bra and a tiny dress or given us creepy close-ups of her nipples. But <laughs> when we see Hannah naked, it's, not, it's remarkable for what it's not. It's not titillating. It's not sexy. I mean, it's not not sexy either. But it's just what's happening to her. And it's, it's, it's as everyday as Dennis Franz's naked ass was in, on NYPD Blue in the 90s, as noteworthy as James Gandolfini climbing out of a pool in The Sopranos, or Louis C.K. rolling over in bed. He does that a lot. Um, <laughs> and I think that's really fucking cool. And a lesser show would have made fun of Shoshana. Nobody ever has fun at her expense, not the other characters, not the show, nothing. She's never a punchline. She's not some lovable Rose Nyland type who can't tell what's going on. I love her, and she is my favourite character on the show. So I think I figured out why Hannah fits after I thought about long enough. If you drew a line between Murphy Brown and Lisa Simpson, Hannah would be right in the middle, probably trying to figure out what the line meant and debating whether she should sit on it or stand next to it or maybe just pour some water on it to stop herself from eating it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Byron. I got many phrases from that, including all-you-can-eat lady buffet, which I think I may possibly use in a different context, but in a disgusting way. Um, okay, now it is the time of the evening where we turn to you guys and we get you to ask our esteemed panel tonight uh, some questions. I just had a curiosity. Is there anyone here that isn't a big fan of girls but is sort of curious enough and came here because of that? So everyone in here is pretty much a fan of the show. Okay, so there's not going to be any haters having a go at you. Uh, does anyone have a question for our panel, in which case? Prompted by something that they've said. Uh, I've got a question for Byron. Then excellent. <laughs> when the panel takes it themselves, let's do this. Um, when you were talking about like the various archetypes, I had no idea about the, the four family mm. model in sitcoms, by the way, so thanks for that. I should um, give Tim Ferguson the credit for that. You should read his book about sitcoms. It's great. Okay, Tim Ferguson. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I find frustrating about that like, desire for people to find a box for girls is that 
the reason that it gets compared to Sex in the City so much is because it's about four women living in New York, and it's it's like it's difficult for people to understand where a story structure about women would fit unless they can easily identify it somewhere. Like I don't know why it doesn't just get to exist on its own and be its own thing, and for Hannah to not be like anybody. Mm. What do you think about that, Byron? Well, I kind of I was talking about this with someone last night because um, I. I don't, I don't really like Sex and the City very much. I watched the entire thing this year because uh, I wanted to have the experience of watching it all. But I don't think girls could exist in a world where Sex and the City hadn't existed. Mm. Um, Had you watched it before you watched it this time around? Like, did you watch, watch it when it was happening, Sex, Sex and the City? City? Yeah. No, I'd only ever seen one episode. So I think that, I that that's a show that's really of its time. That when oh, I, whenever yeah. I go back and I watch it, mm. I go, oh wow, I can't believe we were so revolutionised by it. But at the time, like, oh, they said cunt in one episode. It's amazing. <laughs> like, but, so but at the crazy. time, it, but it, but it was because at the time, probably what we were getting as as women viewers. I mean, I would have been a teenager when Sex and the City started, but um, oh, late teens, yeah. Um, yeah, what we were getting on television, what we were seeing on the screen was basically after a certain point, they were moms and they were wives and that's mm. essentially what the characters were for women. So it was a huge revolution that there were four women and they did what they wanted and they treated men how they wanted and stuff like that. And now it seems really like, oh, and even I had the same tiny experience. Like, I, I guess what I'm saying is that with Sex and the City, so much of it, the affection that people have of it and the judgment that people have of it is, is because of the moment that it occurred. And I was wondering whether that might be the same with girls because I hadn't re I, I was really hung on girls every time. I, I started watching it and downloading it t- legally. Legally. <laughs> legally. Um, <laughs> buying it. Um, it like every, every Monday night <laughs> when it came out. And, and I watched it really hungrily and, and, and it was really exciting to be a part of something that immediately inspired conversation and discussion and what we were seeing on the screen and whether it was representative of this, that and the other. And it was really nice to get really swept up in it. And so by, by the end of the series, I was like, well, that was just amazing. And I rewatched the first episode on the weekend and I thought, is it as good as I thought it was the first time I watched it? I've actually really enjoyed watching the clips tonight because it's reinforced, oh, I think it is actually a really good show and I wasn't crazy. But I wondered that when, if I took I it out of the third. moment, would I have loved the show as much if it wasn't also for part of what it almost represented, which was that wave of how exciting. Now we're seeing more. It's, I mean, it's so much more than Sex in the City. But I, you can see why it's still, it, it, it owes a little bit of a nod to something like Sex in the City, even though it seems almost derivative to say. But it, Sex in the City does have its place. Anyway, sorry, Brian, I interrupted you there. Have a kind no, of I'm just going to interrupt you quickly sure. as well to answer what Jess was saying. Um, I think that the first episode is not one of the strongest ones at all because it's setting up these kind of pretty unlikable characters and Sam and I were just saying when we were watching the clips that same experience of watching it for the first time was kind of like hungry for how good it was and hungry to find out the story as it was unfolding and what was going to happen to all these characters that it's not until you rewatch it or rewatch some of the clips even that you realise how just how good the writing mm. is and it's kind of like I feel like that first time experience of it um, it's more about the moment of it, whereas mm. going back, you, you appreciate the nuances of what she's done and what she's created, especially, I guess, knowing, like... It's sort of almost like a, uh, going back and watching a, a Miss, like an Agatha Christie or something like that and seeing all of the clues along the way, like seeing how she kind of plots it mm. with the writing is, is a really joyful experience re-watching. Mm. 
Um, I was going to say that one of the biggest differences I think that there is between Sex and the City and Girls is that Sex and the City, it's ostensibly based on a book by Candace Bushnell, but if you've ever read the book, you'll know that it's actually nothing like the television series and it's very kind of slimly related. Sex and the City is created by a gay man, Darren Starr, and the showrunner for every season of the show was a gay man, Michael Patrick King, and it was written by a combination of a writer's room full of gay men and straight women. And a lot of the time... I'm quoting Lindy West here when she's talking about the movie, but a lot of the time it feels like gay men playing with Barbie dolls. And a lot of the time it became more about the fashion than anything else. Men in Sex and the City were props, whereas in Girls, they're characters. Like, in Sex and the City, Carrie's relationship with Big isn't really there. We are told that she loves him, but we don't see it. Whereas in Girls, we love Adam just as much as Hannah does, if not more, because we can see how both of them are behaving. I think love's a strong term for how well, I feel about Adam. Sure, but, but you get it, right? Whereas you look at Carrie and Big and you think, there must be something that happened off camera. Yeah, it's called it's not... cha-ching. Well, yeah. sure, yeah. There's also this really great element to the sex that Hannah has. I mean, Sam talked about how... Ring. I remember it vividly. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, awareness that Adam has about the kind of sex that he wants to have. He's got this confidence to him that... And no, he's, he wants to do some weird stuff, like all the stuff with the 11-year-old in the Cabbage Patch lunchbox. Yeah. <laughs> do you know, that, that was, there were some really weird moments with him that I was like, I would not be very comfortable if anyone ever said that to me. Am I rude? Yes. Well, but I think like, is that a thing that people do? They pretend to be 11-year-olds <laughs> in the Cabbage Patch? That's fucked up. I think what's interesting about... But it's honest, about... fucked up and honest. And that's the oh, best honest, thing about honest, it. Yeah. Yeah. honest. Honesty is sexy. And like, he's... It's not if you make it real with an 11-year-old. Yeah, but he's not making it real. Like, he's not making it real, but sorry. But, no, well, what's interesting about Hannah is how she... I can never figure out whether or not she's going along with it because she likes him and she doesn't want to disappoint him. Mm. Or there's that scene when she's, she goes home to visit her parents and she goes on a date with a pharmacist <laughs> and she has sex with a pharmacist and the first thing she says to him is, am I tight like a baby? Yeah, and do you yeah like I'd repress that. Do you, do you like that, am I tight? <laughs> to which I think his response is, I'll don't do that. Well, he just says, you like, I just want to have yeah. normal sex yeah. with you. And I couldn't figure out whether or not that was Hannah being the kind of person that she thought she needed to be in a sexual position, mm. the way that she had been with Adam, or if it was actually genuinely her kind of... You know, she sort of gets off on the, the dirtiness of it as well. And I think that that's an interesting... Or one of the things I took away from the show was that, um, in comparison to Sex and the City, was that they were always after this, like, best-case scenario sexual experience. You know, did, if you didn't have the best sex, then it was a waste of time. Whereas lots of people, in reality, have a lot of compromising sex that they might not necessarily physically enjoy, but that they're compelled somehow by the situation or they're compelled by the relationship that they have with the person, and I thought that was interesting. The sex on Sex in the City was a product. Every time you saw Kim Cattrall's breasts, there was no narrative reason for it. It was just because she wanted to get her tits out, they wanted her to get her tits out, that was how the show worked. She was 50, they were great. Like, oh, if I I'm was not, 50 and they were my cans, they would be out at the drop of a hat. I'm not disparaging her. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Things I know that you would. 50-year-old so. <laughs> But I think, like... Girls is the only show I can think of, and I watched a fuckload of television, uh, where <laughs> sex is used only as a story device. Like, every time we see people having sex on this show, it has a really clear narrative reason, and it, te- it furthers the story, it furthers the characters, you learn about these people. Like, I, it was really interesting, Lena Dunham, I think in that Emily Nussbaum interview that you quoted, uh, talked about how she hated sex in a bra, 
she was referring to like sex in a bra that happens all of the time on television. She yeah. said, you know, the only time there's sex in a bra on girls is money, and that's because she's a sex in a bra kind of girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there's also, when you talk about disturbing sex in the girls universe one of the most disturbing sex scenes i thought was the one between marnie and charlie where he's sort of wanting to have this like really loving sex with her and she's to spice it up has him take her from behind and he's yeah. oh it's just the way that he reacted to it i mean obviously i'm not gonna act it out but <laughs> <laughs> and just her face like her face caught on the camera of just this excruciating experience that she's going through yeah and i think i think too like you, there's a knowingness about like being an audience member watching girls that there wasn't with Sex in the City. Like, it was almost like the girl, the women on Sex in the City are experts, and you're a novice, and you don't really know about their world and their things and their Samantha's weird sex and whatever. Whereas on girls, you're there's there's kind of a dramatic irony there. Like you you are privy to things that they aren't. You know that this is kind of terrible, or that one of the characters is getting the raw deal. But they're mm. still trying to figure out whether or not it's terrible. Um, mm. Like, Hannah rebels against Adam's weird mm. sex things sometimes. Like, she goes crazy when he pees on her in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, that's weird. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Uh, but, like, that's part thing. of the whole narrative of the show. They are yeah. still trying yeah. to figure out how they feel about things and life and sex is a big part of that. So I think it's great that we get to see that confusion registered as it's happening rather than just, like talking about it on brun over brunch mm. like would happen in yeah. Sex in the City. Yeah, that scene where she takes the hundred bucks from his drawer. Yeah. Taking, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And rather than just being told as well that that's not the right kind of sex to be having, you know, that you, you're allowed yeah. to go through the experience with her because we can look back on it, mm. but maybe people who are 16 watching the show might be able to go on that. Yeah, and it's good that it gives her. them the chance to change their mind as well. Like in that scene that you were talking about um, with the doggy star with Marnie and her boyfriend, he says, oh, but you always said that you hated this because mm. it makes you look like a piggy bank or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she goes back on it and is like, no, I want to do it now. And so she gets to sort of change her mind because she is still making up her mind about this sort of stuff, which I think is important rather than you just get one fixed idea and mm. you stick with it for the rest of your life. I was always, I was always quite surprised by... Um, it never struck me that the sex with Adam was ever very good. Yeah. And I, I could never understand her compulsion to, to be drawn to him when he was quite mean to her. He really messed with her head. And it wasn't like, usually when you hear, like when, I, when I've ever heard women in those kind of really stupid relationships where they're not happy and it's really frustrating, they always have some token reason like, oh, but, you know, the sex is amazing, so I know he's an asshole. But I was always... She never seemed like she was quite happy with it, that it was ever... And maybe, and then I guess that's true of, of life as well. But I think was... that that's that's really like a formative experience for a lot of people. That sort of like the sex itself becomes secondary, and you sort of mentioned that it kind of is a narrative structure yeah. in the show. Like it sort of forms the narrative as as well of some people's mm. relationships. Because like Adam says to her, he, she's not actually interested in him. She's just sort of she's kind of obsessed with this idea of being the kind of woman that Adam wants. And so I don't think that the sex is even necessarily that important to her. Well, I think, I think this, this is going to sound kind of Oprah-ish and, and psychobabbly, but uh, I heard somebody say once that uh, men have sex to feel validated, whereas women need to feel validated in order to have sex. And that's a dynamic that's really at play, I think, yeah. in that relationship, is that 
for Adam, it's really just about the sex, but Hannah just wants to kind of be with Adam. Like, yeah. she'd be happy to just, you know, sit on the couch and eat donuts with him or something. I think mm. it's also um, important the timing that Adam comes along in her life, and maybe she's clinging to him more, because, like, her life was upended in the pilot. She got cut off from her parents. She had to find a job. Her friendship with money deteriorates throughout the rest of the season, so maybe she's focusing and clinging to Adam more than she ordinarily would if everything else in her life was fine. Mm. Mm. And I think, too, in terms of, like, the sex probably not being very good. We hear that Hannah's only slept with three people, we don't know who the third is, but the other one is Elijah, who's gay. Like, that yeah. sex can't have been particularly good either, so maybe <laughs> maybe she thinks the sex with Adam yeah. is great. Maybe you know? she just doesn't, yeah, she doesn't have much of an idea. And I like that reference. she's not judged for making those decisions as well. Like, the show mm. never sort of sets her up to be this person who's... I feel like the show is very feminist, but I don't feel like it's forcing the characters to behave in a feminist way. Yeah, well, I, I mean, really like that about it. I remember watching reruns of Beverly Hills 90210 on Foxtel when I was 12, and every time someone had sex on that show, they got punished. Like, <laughs> if I'd watched, if I'd been able to watch. That's like Neighbours. Neighbours is the same, or Home and Away. Yeah. But no one I'd, gets out of high school without getting married. Every single person who has sex in the Neighbours or Home and Away ends up having a baby or married, or getting an abortion, like no one just ever no, had no, sex No, 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 like, no one's ever had an abortion on Neighbours. Okay, well, like, there's never They did say the consequence word consequence, no one ever oh, had sex in like, they, they got close to it with them. Um, yeah, recently that they, girl started, had they had the, a storyline where Susan went away. Had but a python? What? <laughs> she was like, that not yeah, watched in a while, but that show was taking a turn. So I remember at the time show, when yeah. um, Stephanie McIntosh was, I think that's the actress's, actress's yeah. name. Yeah, that would be Sky Mangle <laughs> that you're talking about. This is the era that I can lock in. Oh, actually, she's not that... I shouldn't have said that, that was mean. Um, <laughs> I was just going for a cheap laugh and it was bad of me. Um, Sky Mangle, when she got pregnant, she they couldn't even talk about... I remember having mm. friends on the writing team at the time and they weren't even allowed to say the word termination, abortion. Mm. She was thinking about it, but she was just sort of forced to use all this language like... I don't know if I'm ready to be a mother. I don't know if I'm prepared. Yeah, I, d I knew some of yeah. the same people. I was dating one of them. And they had a whiteboard in what? the writer's room of words they could use instead of abortion. Like, wow. wow. And that was I different too. Because the, yeah. the previous character who still had actually had to have the baby, but back in like the 80s or the 90s, they could use that language around it. So it shows just in certain areas of TV how we've kind of stepped back. Mm. And I think maybe that sort of goes back to that reason of why it's enjoyable to watch girls because it does feel like you're not seeing it's, it feels like you're seeing things that haven't been on TV before and it's not necessarily about the crazy sex but you don't see a girl who looks like Lena Dunham with small tits and kind of like sort of a little bit of a duck shaped body yeah. taking her clothes off and it being fine like well, taking her clothes off and doing it just very normally just naturally, yeah. it, and and yeah, it, it is really refreshing. Well, this very Gen X and Y show has uh, prompted a lot of discussion tonight. I think we're probably time to wrap up the Q&A. Thank you so much for coming this evening. Before we go, first of all, can we get a big round of applause for our panel this evening? Uh, Clementine, <laughs> Sam, Byron and Michaela. I've been Jen. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.